right, everyone, welcome to episode 32 of the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke, and on this episode, I had the pleasure in interviewing strength and conditioning coach Nick Winkman. Nick Winkman is a strength and conditioning coach and educator at Least Performance in Phoenix, Arizona in the United States. And on this episode, me and Nick discussed many topics, including Nick's background, Nick's influences, Nick's overall training philosophy, the speed continuum, Nick's thoughts on periodization, and Nick's advice for young and up-and-coming strength and conditioning coaches. This was an extremely informative interview, and I hope you guys really enjoyed the show. Okay, Coach Nick Winkleman, as with every guest I've had on my show, it's a pleasure and an honour to have you on my podcast. Just for the listeners who aren't too familiar with who you are and your background, just fill us in. Yeah, Robbie, I um, uh, work at Athletes Performance. Um, our current title is Director of Movement. Um, I've been here for about seven years. Got my undergrad at uh, Oregon State University in Exercise Science. Did the Master's of Strength and Conditioning through Edith Cowan University. And now I'm pursuing a, a PhD in kind of the coaching sciences through a university called Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions. And over my seven years at AP, I've spent primarily majority of my time overseeing our NFL Combine program as the kind of the speed technical coach, as well as overseeing all of our, our data and testing, as well as overseeing our international education program. And now I've kind of stepped into a new position where I'll still oversee the Combine. Um, but also work on our performance innovation team, kind of in an innovation role, working directly with Mark Verstegen and Craig Feedman, kind of help uh, steer the ship, if you would, into the new performance frontier. Who would you say have been your biggest influences on you, both as a coach and as a person, Nick? I think as a, per- as a person, um, first and foremost, my family. Uh, my, my grandfather, I've been blessed to spend my whole life with him as well as my father and mother and sister and uh, my beautiful wife Brittany and my daughter Gracie so as a person they continue to keep me um, humble and grounded. Uh, in terms of mentors my first mentor was uh, Guido Van Rysigum. he still is a dear friend of mine we speak every week and go to multiple conferences a year uh, so Guido kind of being a, of European uh, birth has been in the United States now so he taught me really what it was about to be a professional at a young age to blend science and practice and, and hold yourself at the highest level. And then, you know, most recently, I'd say at Athletes Performance, uh, my close colleague, uh, Dennis Logan, uh, Dan Zeke, and then Mark Verstegen have just been all incredible mentors of mine. And really, every, everybody in, on the Perform Better circuit and really in the circle of strength and conditioning worldwide. I mean, I'm really one of those people that believe you can learn something good or bad from everybody. So I try to kind of take a, a global a mentorship type mindset where I learn from from everyone very good very good what would you say Nick are the biggest problems that you see within the strength and conditioning profession um, I, I don't know if they're, they're problems because right we don't know what we don't know yeah. and I think I think the fact that we we know that we don't know what we don't know <laughs> means that we have to open our eyes to what else is out there so I think kind of my current answer to that question would be I would current, uh, encourage strength and conditioning coaches in any profession, professional in our field, to look at other fields. Yes, look, at, yeah. look at who is really doing it, doing something well in another field. Let me give you an example. You know, I, I, I think a lot of people are very interested now in big data and monitoring data and predictive analytics and things like that. And rather than us just you know, looking at ourselves, which I think is still important in sharing information, let's look at who's doing that the best. You know, Amazon and Google you know, predictive type 
and you know, looking at um, insurance, uh, insurance fraud, and credit card fraud, and these areas where predictive analytics is their world. So why, as a strength conditioning coach, wouldn't I go look at someone who's really using predictive analytics at the highest level? That's just one example. So I think you know, I would encourage strength conditioning coaches just to get out of their comfort zone. Look at other fields, even though at face value it might not seem that it directly applies. At the end of the day, this world across disciplines is going to have more similarities than differences. It's just knowing how to uh, curve those into the world that you work in. Yeah, that's, that's, I absolutely 100% agree with that. I all say that all the time, particularly the interns. I, I mightn't be as maybe, you know, credit, credit card test or analytics stuff when it came to my mind, but I always tell like my interns, you know, you should look into functional medicine as well and other areas like that and uh, neuroscience and all this type of stuff, not just don't stay within the box of strength and condition because you can learn so much from other disciplines. I 100% agree. Yeah, and, and with that said, I had a conversation with um, a group of individuals yesterday. You know, we also tend to be so enamored that we look at, we want to improve the performance of something. We want to improve a method. We want to improve a strategy, whatever it is. So what we do is we tend to look at who's doing that the best. Yeah. Who is um, capable of applying such a method or principle that you're interested in and who's having tremendous success with it. But what I would encourage is while that is important, also look the opposite. If there is something you are trying to develop, look at a population of individuals that have the inability to develop such a thing. So looking at individuals with, with MS or CP, you know, looking at kids with uh, attention deficit disorder or who have uh, some level of, uh, of a disease state where they cannot develop the quality or have the inability to develop the quality that you're interested in. And understanding kind of their disease state and the difficulties that they have, understanding those gaps will provide an unbelievable amount of information about what you actually need to develop in the positive sense. Absolutely. So I, I think, again, looking at two sides to a coin when we're learning is, is another great way to uh, approach development. Nick, what would you say if someone asked you, Coach Winkman, what is your training philosophy? How would you answer that? My training philosophy, uh, number one, is I, I claim no allegiance to one method. Mm. Um, I am through and through a believer in a principles-based strength and conditioning coach, and based on principles, you know, I believe that you must have a, a system. So for me, my philosophy is really having all the right components in the right order. You know, that's everything we do at AP, from how we eval, how we do our injury prevention and pillar prep, all the way down through our energy system development and regeneration. So first and foremost, I know it's a vague answer. I'm a principle-based strength and conditioning coach. I want to I want to train things that I know are founded in science and practice because I know how we execute those principles through methods. Right? We used to do a ton of static stretching. Now we do a ton of dynamic stretching. So things evolve over time. I'd also say that I am very much so a, a movement-based strength and conditioning coach in that I am always going to look at how every piece of what I do goes to improving the movement of my athlete and their performance on their field of play or in whatever their life-specific goals are. So I'm always going to be concerned with how does everything I do transfer to the field. So principle-based and movement-based with the ideology that I want everything to transfer to the field. I'm not just a bigger, faster, stronger guy. I want to see how it actually evolves into their sport. Okay, so let's let's ask that question a slightly different way. So, if I'm an athlete and I come I come to you looking for your services, what system? What is your system? Like, where do we start? I go to you. Do you yeah. do you assess me? Do you test yeah, me? Yeah, okay. 
Yes, a detail. So what we're going to do is you're going to come through, and the very first thing is we're going to go through an evaluation. At the, at the most fundamental level, that is going to involve some level of a body composition assessment. That's going to involve some kind of a functional movement screen. That's going to involve some kind of a, a VO2 assessment, either direct or indirect. From there, then, if you are an athlete, we are going to identify the general and specific performance tests that are going to be needed. So by general, I would mean anything that's going to be strength and power-based testing in a weight room. In my world, I'm going to do quite a bit of uh, various Kaiser testing to generate power profiles. And then on the field, we will do specific linear, multi-directional, and reactive-based agility testing to kind of give us an understanding of how you apply all of your assets on the actual field of play and try to create such a profile. And then over all of that, we would try to create a, a behavioral profile. So using things that we call AD, like um, the it illuminator, what's your it, what makes you tick, identify goals, and then we have some other behavioral assessments that we use through one of our consultants, Dr. Roy Sugarman, which is basically a, a neurophysiological profile, if you would, and that gives us quite a bit of an understanding of how you're going to deal and handle emotional regulation. Mm -hmm. So a long-winded answer, that's how we eval. We create a very robust profile. From there, that profile is going to bleed down into the actual day-to-day -day program, which first and foremost, everything an athlete's going to do is go through pillar preparation with us. So that means they're going to do specific massage, stretch, activation that typically is going to be based on some level of a screen. That's going to be what I would call the individualized warm-up in the session. Yeah. From there, an athlete's going to go through our kind of four-component movement preparation, which is really meant to just start the car, start the engine, if you would, for the race of that day. From there, every athlete's going to go through some level of movement skills, whether uh, the day may be linear-based, it may be multi-based, and it's going to go on a progression of pre-programmed to inevitably more reactive agility and random. And when we do movement skills for the listeners, we're not necessarily talking about doing energy system development or a bunch of drills. It's very much so a track and field technical development approach to movement. And then finally, to back up all that movement, we are going to do specific plyometrics, uh, medicine bar work, strength and power with the whole statement that we are a movement-based company, therefore it's strength to support movement. So if I'm working on a guy that needs to work on acceleration, we're going to do a lot of pause stuff with high-level acceleration out of the bottom. If I have an individual that needs to work on more reactive type work, we might do a, a bit more speed squat or speed bench type work. So we're going to try to groove the weight room to fit the specific goal on the field. And then finally, similar mindset of what is the energy system development that they need and how do we then cap that out with regeneration. Collectively, then our philosophy, the application of mindset, nutrition, movement, and recovery. That's our four major pillars. And you can plug and play any method that fits in one of those drawers, if you would, to make that system fit. And for the listeners out there, one thing to understand is, in the world I work in, the longest I have an athlete is eight weeks. So very much so, we are training for the immediacy of a goal, the immediacy of a season. We don't do quite as much you know, longitudinal type work over a whole year because that's not the world we work in. So I work in a world of quick results, efficient results, and motivation through education so the athlete can carry that through their season. 
Nick, I had uh, Nicole Rodriguez on a few weeks back, and I said that one of the topics I really wanted to talk to you in depthly was speed and the speed continuum. It's, it's an area that I love talking about too. So, how different buyer motor qualities correlate to different parts of a linear sprint? So, like 0 to 10 or 0, 5, yeah. 0, 10 is like our non counter movement jumps, are kind of purely concentric efforts. Then, as we get on out further, it's more. Uh, counter movement type work and more yeah. traditional strength work and then as we go even further it's more elastic, elastic type work through plyometrics and whatnot. can you just discuss your thoughts on linear speed development yeah it's such I mean we, we share the passion in this area um, so let's for the listeners let's kind of create a visual in our mind of, uh, of, of a 40 yard sprint or, or a 30 meter sprint if you're in soccer um, and, and to your point, yeah, let's think of the 0 to 10 or 0 to 15, based on who you ask, as your, your acceleration zone, and then your 15 and beyond. Let's say 15 to 30 is your top end speed, your absolute speed zone. Now, obviously, we know there'd be a, a transition somewhere in there, yeah. and we know there, there's specific qualities associated with how you start, whether it be a 3 or a 2, but we won't discuss those. So we're really just talking acceleration and absolute speed. Now, I think one thing that's important to understand is when, when I say acceleration absolute speed, I'm referring to the technical movement quality that is most evident in that portion of the race. What I mean by that is during a 30-meter sprint, the athlete is going to be accelerating virtually the entire time, but we don't use that vernacular when it comes to describing technique. So we're talking about acceleration is the forward body position, piston-like leg action, from 0 to 15, and absolute speed is more of the upright, cyclical, top-end speed action. So, in terms of biomotor, we know a couple things. And anytime we're trying to really dig in deep and generate specific recommendations, we have to know what correlations are general and what correlations are, are more distinct, meaning they actually separate between acceleration and absolute speed. So here's a couple things we know. We know that overall, majority of studies, maximal strength, counter-movement, and non-counter-movement actually, have a fairly strong correlation across every phase of the sprint. Mm -hmm. Now to your point, uh, Robbie, you will find some studies that might find non-counter-movement correlating a little bit better to acceleration, and counter-movement because it's a bit more of a stretch-shortening quality to top-end speed, but there's, there's probably equal in part studies saying that they all equally correlate across the race. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think what's important to know is you gotta be fair you gotta be strong and you have to have good jumping characteristics and those are typically synonymous with someone that sprints well. But it still doesn't give us the distinction of who needs to work on top end speed and who needs to work on acceleration in, in a short time period. So if we dig into the research, here's where we start to find the, the true distinction where the correlations separate themselves. And we see those correlations increase beyond just non-counter and counter. And that's where if you look at any of the quality work on horizontal jumping, so the broad jump of sorts, but really any of the horizontal jumping that involves single leg work. So there's a specific exercise called the single leg kind of drop to horizontal hop. And basically the, the studies involve someone stepping off a 20 centimeter box, landing on one leg, and then hopping out as far as they can to land on two legs. So it's a very safe type of an exercise. And, and John Cronin out of AUT has done a lot of this research, and they found absolutely that that kind of a uh, horizontal jump, or in that case horizontal hop, has incredibly high correlations to zero to 10 meter time. Really? So I think if we look across the research, horizontal jumping is definitely the biomotor ability that is going to be probably most intimately married to your acceleration. Mm. When we then look at top end speed, 
we find another movement that starts creating that distinction, and that is doing some kind of a drop jump or a depth jump. And really the reason is when you get into drop jumps and depth jumps, we start seeing that the joint angles, the ground contact time, and the rate of force development starts becoming very similar to the ground contact joint angles that we see during top end speed. So we also know that in the drop jump and the depth jump, you have to primarily generate vertical propulsive force. And we know in the research by you know, Peter Wayand and the likes that vertical force is the key distinction in having optimal top end speed. Not that horizontal doesn't exist, obviously it does, but vertical is the, is the game changer. So in terms of plyometrics for the listeners, horizontal jumping and hopping is what's really going to give you the bang for the buck on the correlation side for acceleration biomotor. And then it's going to got to be your, your drop jump or your depth jump from at least probably 20 to 30 centimeters off the box and then seeing how either ground contact time or, or jump height being what you're interested in from a plyometric standpoint. Now, taking one step further into the weight room, you will start to see a distinction that we tend to find that, that relative strength is really the big correlate to acceleration and starting capabilities, whereas maximal strength tends to have a more consistent correlation to top end speed. And, and again, this makes sense because if I'm coming from a two or three point stance, uh, inertia is, is keeping me right where I am at. I have to break that inertial uh, lock, if you would, and therefore it's not only the force to overcome my body weight, but also to overcome inertia to get my system going. Once my body is already moving at, you know, um, eight, nine meters per second based on the speed of the athlete, all that momentum is moving me forward whether or not I ask it to. So at that point, it's just about how much force can I put into the ground at 100 milliseconds. Hence the reason we tend to see the absolute amount of force you can generate takes on a more important role from a rate of force development standpoint at, at top end speed. So in, in final, horizontal and relative strength for acceleration, Vertical base drop jump, drop jump, depth jump, and maximal strength for top end speed. Those tend to be your clean, distinctive uh, biomotor abilities that will tell you who needs to work on acceleration and who needs to work on absolute speed. That's a brilliant answer. Another another presentation um, that I really enjoyed yours was actually on Strength Coach webinars, and it was about the mixed method approach to hypertrophy. Can you just speak about that, Mick? Yeah. So we we know that in terms of hypertrophy. You know, there, there's a couple different opinions out there. You have hyperplasia, which obviously is, you know, we're increasing the actual uh, amount of fibers, and there's plenty of argument for it for and against that. Um, and that's not so much what I talk about in that, in that presentation. What we really talk about is this whole concept of uh, sarcoplasmic kind of hypertrophy versus myofibrillar. So to put that in lay terms, it's am I actually causing growth in hypertrophy of, of muscle fibers that are associated with an increase in actual strength and performance, or am I increasing the hypertrophy of the, the connective and cellular tissue that, that supports and gives life to that contractile tissue? So in one case, you have hypertrophy of structures that actually improve performance. In another case, you have hypertrophy of structures that don't. Now, I want to make this very clear. Whatever, the body, whatever load and stimulus you put on the body, the body will respond appropriately. So in me making this distinction, I'm not saying one is better than the other because however you load the system is how it's going to respond. But the question is, are you getting the adaptation that you intended? So what does that mean? Well, here's what we know. If you look back at the McDougall research in the 80s, 
they actually were able to take biopsies of bodybuilders and powerlifters and general population. And here's the scary thing that they found. They found that in bodybuilders, if they looked at volume of tissue, they found that bodybuilders had a preferential hypertrophy of type 1 structures, whereas powerlifters and even general population from a ratio perspective, it was evident that they had a preferential hypertrophy of type 2. So if we're a strength coach listening to this, we're thinking, okay, type 2 is associated with strength and power. Type 1 is associated with a bit more of an endurance fiber. And what we also know about type 1 is it's a bit more of a resilient fiber, which means it tends to have more uh, non-contractile tissue structures associated with it. So it, it tends to be a bit more fascially uh, dense of sorts. Now, it might not be completely scientifically accurate in that, but that is a, a general trend. So what we know then is if you do fairly consistent high volume of 10 to 12 plus reps over high set structures of four to six sets, and that's how you train in your you know, general adaptation period and during any of your hypertrophy periods, it's not that those, those repetition structures are bad, but that type of bodybuilding flex magazine type consistent load actually results in more hypertrophy of non-contractile tissues and type 1 tissue structures. And again, it should make sense why that happens. If you're doing fairly low load, high volume, your body isn't perceiving a demand for increasing contractile strength. You're not lifting something heavy. But what it is perceiving is, hell, i got to give a lot more resilience to my tissue, and i got to give a lot more fundamental endurance. So it ends up reinforcing tissue, just like the scaffolding around a building that's breaking down by increasing non-contractile tissue volume. And then it also puts hypertrophy on your type 1 because that's the dominant fiber that you are fatiguing. Whereas when I do heavier strength training, less than 6 reps, the body says, man, this weight is freaking heavy. I've got to make an adaptation that's going to improve the resilience of my body to be able to overcome such a load. So in that case, we tend to see more type 2 hypertrophy. Now, in both cases, it's never all or none, meaning you're always going to have a balance. But the question is, are you swinging the pendulum in the favor of contractile tissue or non-contractile tissue? So in the presentation Robbie is referring to, I propose, and I am by no means the first person to propose this at all, a mixed method approach, especially, especially as an athlete gets older and older and older. Young athletes can do 10, 20, or 1 rep, and they're going to get bigger, faster, stronger. But when you're working with a 20-year-old who already has a good base, we want to make sure we're developing the right kind of hypertrophy that supports performance. So a mixed method approach would say this. You can swing the pendulum towards a bit higher volume in your general adaptation or your GPP period. But what I'd recommend is rather than having the whole day be sets of, of 10, have the first couple set structures still be six and below, whether it's through power or strength type focus. Have your mid sets probably be that six to eight range. And then use circuits towards the end or some kind of higher volume set structure of 10 plus repetitions to actually generate that metabolic response. And all I'm getting at is if we can create a balance of a metabolic response, which is critical for hormonal, balance that with a mechanical response through load, should use a mixed method approach to actually have a more optimal type of hypertrophy that therefore is going to stay with them in season, rather than seeing a kid that gains 20 pounds every season because he loses it each time. Eat quick, quick to gain is quick to loss. And quick to gain is typically a higher volume of non-contractile tissue hypertrophy, and that's not what we want in athletes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I read some stuff from Brad Schoenfield and Brett Contreras, and 
I had a good conversation with Brett once. Uh, it was about maybe eighteen months ago or two years ago, and read Brad's stuff, and he was talking about that you know that there's mechanical tension, overall muscle damage, and metabolic stress, and then from that I kind of came up with this sort of system that mechanical hypertrophy is in that three to six repetitions and then there's kind of a mixture of higher end mechanical lower end metabolic from six to eight reps and then you're kind of metabolic on upwards is eight to twelve and i use a mixed method approach too i usually have like the main lift in that kind of three to six rep range so like maybe like four sets of six or five sets of five and then the assistance work i usually put into that more classical hypertrophy range then from you know eight to twelve reps or something like that yeah, you got it. Because at the end of the day, we want the hormonal response. So my goal would be to create, uh, to Brett's point, create as much mechanical tension as possible and then give them a nice big glass of, uh, you know, theoretical hormones by hitting them with the volume work at, at the end. And they've shown, the research has shown, that one, one set of hit, one set of, you know, 60-70% to failure is enough to create a significant hormonal response. So as long as you create that mechanical damage, Right? You just need to get a bit of a hormonal cocktail going in the system through that higher volume range. It's actually funny you say that because I remember now actually from that presentation, I think you had something like, was it, I can't remember, was it four sets of four, five sets of four, six sets of four, but then at, at, at the last set you like stripped the weight down and did that kind of hit set. And I yeah. actually I actually used to, I used to, I haven't done it in a while, but I remember I did a block of that with, with my guys like, and they all used to love it. We used to do like three heavy sets of five and then it was like stripped the weight down to 70%. And just go as many reps as you can. They used to love doing that. Yeah, and that's a great thing to do, you know, if you can, you know, in season. Because one set of that's not going to be enough to really make someone overly sore. Yeah. But it's kind of what uh, I, I believe Mike Stone and his cohort calls the, the deload set or something to like that. And, uh, you know, a strength endurance set just to get a hormonal spike. And, again, it, it has a bit of a protective mechanism if you look at the research. Yeah, it's great stuff. Just I know we touched on testing there slightly, but let's just get a little more into testing and how, what testing do you do to look at each biomotor quality so if we're talking about work capacity maximum strength explosive strength elastic reactive strength and actual speed and, and multi-directional speed what what have you got in place there yeah so i think we'll start in the weight room and move our way to the field um when we look when we look at the weight room obviously we're not doing anything that's overly fancy so you know we'll test olympic lifting the same way everyone would uh, maximal strength the same way everyone would but with our Kaiser will tend to do kind of low to high load set profiles, mm -hmm. and in doing so, all we're trying to do is kind of create this uh, applied, if you would, power curve to understand how, how do they generate power at low load, how do they generate power at high load, kind of get a sense of what that curve looks like, and are we matching that curve to the actual um, sport. So I, I think that's in the weight room probably the easiest answer, and with Kaiser, we can obviously do a lot of both dynamic as well as static pause type power development exercises. So that, that's in the weight room. Um, in terms of plyometrics, for me, non-counter movement and counter movement are, non-counter movement is basically a good expression of starting strength. Counter movement is a good expression of the explosive strength, which is really just an extension of starting strength. Um, and then, you know, if we're, if we're looking at uh, reactive strength, either a depth jump or a drop jump it just the difference from my standpoint is and this is goes back to the work of Eric Pashansky is the depth jump is going to be where I step off a given box height and the instruction is jump as high as you can versus a drop jump is step off that same size box but now the instruction is while spending the least amount of time on the ground jump as high as you can and especially the latter of those two the drop jump tends to be a better marker on uh, overall reactive strength and then I think for the same reason we do non-counter and counter, we do that horizontally 
using uh, some level of a broad jump, repeated jump. And in both cases, especially for the horizontal jumping and let's say like the counter movement, vertical jump, I would like to see those done in both single leg versions and two leg versions. And again, I think anytime we can look at single leg and we can start looking at symmetry, we start getting more of what we would call a speed fatigue load profile on injury risk. I think the FMS is great, but I think to add value to the FMS, we need things like speed load and fatigue, left versus right, and symmetry values there. So that's kind of, um, so if the weight room is general strength, those plyometric qualities are the specific strength of starting, um, explosive, and reactive. Then when we get actually onto the field, uh, from a linear standpoint, you know, I like to use as many gates as possible. I don't mind if it's a two-point or a three-point sport-specific. But I think for most athletes, um, 40 yards is a good distance. Because even if we look at 30 meters, a few more steps, you're at 40 yards. So we tend to use 40 yards because it's, uh, it's the right distance for lacrosse. It's the right distance for football. It's, the right, it's, it's just long enough for soccer. So if I use 40 yards, I'm going to take splits at every 10 yards and create that linear speed profile that you and I just discussed. Um, from a multi-directional standpoint, I'm really, I'm really a fan in the way we do it here. You know, we still do the 5-10-5 and the L drill and the box drill and stuff like that. But, you know, even, even those drills, looking at left and right, you don't get good data because they're, already, they're making three direction changes for most of those drills to the left and to the right. So you can't tease out truly left and right. So I think the work of Jeremy Shepard, Warren Young, Tim Gabbett out of Australia, and the reactive agility construct is kind of where we're at. And especially Tim Gabbett has some brilliant papers that look at change of direction, a simple Y drill, right? Sprint ahead, change direction left, change direction right. Do that three or four times each direction, get a good average. And then do that same exact test under reactive conditions, either using uh, like a fusion system and have it be light-based, use another human, as was the case in the paper by Jeremy Shepard, or if you have the, the finances, create an actual uh, projection system, as was the case with, with Warren Young and some of his group. But either way, if I can get then a measure of left and right change of direction versus left and right reactive agility, and those are tested the same way, I can then make comparisons. I can make comparisons on your symmetry. I can understand, is it a brain problem? Is it a strength problem? And we start to create four, four buckets where you are slow speed, slow thinker. And these are kind of the words of uh, Tim, so not literally slow thinker. We don't mean to offend anybody. But slow <laughs> movement on change of direction, slow thinking on reactive. Then we could have a fast mover on change of direction, slow thinker on the reactive agility. We could have a slow mover and a fast thinker. That's your player that doesn't test well, right, but is killer on the field, seems to know the game so well, breaks looking faster than everyone else. And then you've got your golden you know, boys and girls, which is your fast thinker, fast mover. And that's your supreme athlete is a great tester, great mover, and has the brain speed. So if, if those are kind of your main two constructs on the field, obviously then we could do more granular sports-specific testing. Uh, from an ESD perspective, I'm a big fan of what they're doing in France and Australia. So mass, so the, the maximal aerobic speed testing, which really ends up just kind of giving you track and field recommendations on distance and time, making it individualized. I think the 3015 is great. Um, I don't think you can go wrong with the yo-yo if it's applied consistently. Uh, and then I think, you know, obviously for high scientific rigor, if you can do a nice VO2 test and lactate testing, I think that's all great. Um, and then, you know, from a, from a monitoring perspective, I think you can get real-time data on a lot of those things if you have an appropriate monitoring system, which with good monitoring should decrease the amount of actual robust 
singular testing that you have to do. And then behavioral, you know, looking at, uh, looking at perceived exertion, looking at, you know, Myers-Briggs communication profiles, um, looking at, you know, psych profiles, hardiness scales to look at mental resiliency. There's quite a bit of uh, psychosocial subjective testing that's been, uh, that's been quantified and validated to have, you know, upwards of 25 expo- 25% explained variance in injuries. So let's not just look at physical stuff. We've got to look at behavior. Behavior qualifies the resilience of movement skills. If you've got someone who moves really well, tests off the charts, but behaviorally isn't there, you know, they got to be red flag because they might not be making the right choices off the field. If you've got someone that's average, but behaviorally is going to work so hard, you know that average is going to give you consistent performance, behavior acts as a qualifier for physical performance. That's extremely interesting. Like one, the one area I've been trying to look into, well, I haven't looked into it too in-depthly, but the one area with regards to my training system was I don't have anything to look at psychology or the psychological aspect of an athlete. Now, uh, to me, I, I'm big into holistic health and functional medicine, and I know that people who have a lot of psychological issues, you know, so they have mental, emotional, spiritual uh, health issues, a lot of the time I do believe there's huge biochemical factors behind that, so like nutrition and circadian rhythms, but even just to be able to do a, so like some sort of psychoanalysis, that's one area I'm trying to look into, so it's very interesting that you said what you said there. Yeah, absolutely, and I, you know, I think if you look at you know um, books like, and I haven't read this one, but Molecules of Emotion, yeah, and really, first, I, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, emotion what we call emotion is really feeling because emotion is at the subconscious level, right? And emotions yeah. are nothing more to your point than, than kind of chemical manifestations. And if we can help someone identify coping strategies, emotional control, then that's going to be uh, a critical piece to their success. Nick, something else that um, I wouldn't have too much knowledge about, but you seem to be, I think you spoke about it on the Perform Better Tours last year. No, I was not in the Perform Better, but it was about coaching and cueing. Was that right? Yep. Can you just, it was like external versus internal. To be honest, I I didn't really get too much into it. So can you just touch on that? Yeah, this is actually the area that I'm spending probably the most time on recently. um, And it's the focus of my dissertation. So the the big kind of metaphor that I present is if we were to take 10 10 different coaches, we would provide them all access to the, the same kind of cloned athlete, if you would, and we control for the program, the environment, and the athlete, just as kind of a, a thought experiment. Well, the only difference was the coach. I, I tend to ask crowds, would the results be the same? And everyone absolutely shakes their head and says, no, the results would be completely different. So that's just an interesting thought for the listener because think about how much time we spend looking just at methods and programming and the X's and O's. Now, I'm not saying any of that is wrong. Obviously, it's brilliant. You need to have those things. But if we all agree that the coach is that powerful of a discriminator between who's going to have great success and who's not, why aren't we looking a bit more at that? So, you know, when you get into motor learning and things like educational psychology, you start to see that there are these huge sciences, you know, built around teaching. And I think that's all self-evident to most people, but, again, we very rarely look at it. So in motor learning, the three big buckets of interest uh, for me have been kind of practice design, instruction, and feedback. So specifically what I'm presenting on now is on instruction and feedback. Because at the end of the day, as a coach, what we tell our athletes is so much a part of the guided success or failure that they have. 
And when you look into instruction, you know, the major thing that we're doing is we're guiding one's attention. We're telling them what to think about and what to do. So funny enough, the science around instruction, which was really headed up by Gabrielle Wolf, is called attentional focus. And attentional focus, the first formal papers on attentional focus related to instruction was in 98. And then, you know, as of this year, there was about, I want to say, eight publications. And when you read about attentional focus, there's basically two different ways you can draw someone's attention. You can draw someone's attention to an external focus or an internal focus. So an internal focus is anything that is movement, process, or body-oriented. So that would be cues like extend your hip, squeeze your glute, tighten your abs, I want you to dorsiflex, any anatomical body part cue. Now if we pause for a second as a listener, think about how often we cue the body. Some might argue they cue it 90% of the time. Some of the research on physical therapists say over 75% of the time they say something, it's about the body. And then external cueing is basically about the environment. It's about outcomes. So now these things like push the ground away, sprint towards the fence, try to touch the ceiling, snap under the bar, chuck the ball to the ceiling, hit the wall as hard as you can, where basically you convert an anatomical movement process cue into its resultant movement effect on the world. And an example for sprinting would be, I want you to explosively push off your foot versus I want you to explosively push off the ground. Or I want you to explosively extend your hips or I want you to sprint explosively towards that next line or that next marker. So it's not a matter of can I say this? It's a matter of how I say this. And what we have found in now, I want to say it's 16 years, going on 16 years of research, well over 90% of the papers from laboratory experiments all the way to golfing, sprinting, agility, jumping, you name it, everything in between, has shown that an external cue provides statistically significant superiority in performance, typically in practice, but almost always in retention and transfer, which really embodies true learning of the athlete. So what I employ every listener to do is, is read the book, Attention and Motor Skill Learning by Gabrielle Wolf. Get into this because it'll absolutely either reinforce how you coach or slightly modify how you're coached because really uh, there are very few reasons why one would need to use an internal cue when there's an external cue equal in part but more effective for performance. That's, uh, that's great stuff. I just took the title of that book. Um, let's just touch, we have a few minutes left, let's just touch on, on program design and periodization. Now I know you slightly went over the AP system, but let's just get a little more depthly and then let's just touch on periodization and the different schemes and what your opinion is on periodization. Okay, uh, I'm so sorry. Tell me the beginning of that again. So let, we, we discussed a little bit about program design earlier on, but let's, let's get in a little more depthly to program design and then on to periodization. Ah, periodization. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, at AP, we're in a unique environment where, you know, we can have athletes as short as, as a one-week kind of recharge all the way to, at most, I have the NFL Combine guys for eight weeks. So when we look at periodization, I guess I'll, I'll back way out and discuss kind of the resource that I feel uh, best guides periodization selection. And that really was, you know, it is the work of, of Mike Stone and Mike Stone basically breaks periodization into what he calls a novice 
intermediate and advanced profile. And I really love this approach to understand periodization. And this is kind of to give you the insight, the approach that we take when we're picking a periodization. So the novice approach to periodization is basically the person with a low training age. And in that case, he recommends uh, you know, a linear approach to periodization. So going through your traditional BAPA, MATVIA, where you go from kind of a, a general adaptation or a GPP more to a, a, special, a, a special toy preparation, where you might go hypertrophy, strength, power, so on and so forth. We've all seen that. Many people bash that, but there's no research to say it's bad. In fact, uh, I have not found a paper that has ever shown another periodization model to be superior to that model in novices. So the take-home is linear periodization works quite well for novices. Therefore, if you were to come here and look at our youth programs, you would see a lot of linear-type periodization that progresses uh, as such. An intermediate profile uh, involves a bit more variation. So it is what I like to call an undulatory-type periodization. And when we look at undulation, what's cool about it is it provides the most diversity. Because I can undulate basically at the level of the phase, I can undulate at the level of the week, and I can undulate at the level of the day. Which means I may have what Charles Pollock would call extensive intensive phases that are three weeks in length that basically alternate towards an end goal. I may use more of summated microcycles, as Mike Stone would, would recommend, that can go from kind of intensive towards extensive, or extensive towards intensive, where I change the volume structure every single week, down to the granular level that works very well in season, which is daily undulatory periodization. And if you look at any of the work of Dan Baker, he's an expert in, in using daily undulatory periodization, where you might have a day of strength, a day of power, and a day of more volume. I don't want to call it hypertrophy necessarily, but a day of volume. So you have some intensive days, and you have some, some more extensive volume-based days. So again, that can provide a, such a diversity of options there. And the more often you undulate, the less risk you are at of overtraining, and therefore the better it is for in season. The less often you undulate, and the more saturation you impart, the better it is for the development of a given quality. And then finally, your advanced profile is your conjugate sequence, or direct translation from Russian, your coupled successive system, first put forth by Yuri Berkoshansky and now popularized through block periodization by Vladimir Isserin. And in looking at that, um, that's basically, it's a saturation model. We are going to work on one quality, one biomotor quality for three to four weeks, and then one more speed-based quality or technical quality for another three to four weeks, where the goal is to get the supercompensation or delayed transformation into the specific speed quality. So for example, I may do maximal strength for three to four weeks, then go into my general prep of my sprint training with a strength maintenance. Then I'm going to go into a maximal power phase for three to four weeks, and then maintain that while I go into a higher, let's say, top-end speed or more robust sprint training protocol. So it's literally this uh, in some sense, is a high-level undulation between you know, biomotor speed qualities and biomotor strength and power qualities that simply just decreases variation to give you increases in saturation. And I think if we look at those three models, I'm a believer in all three dependent on the environment. But for most people, the periodization gives you the most utility and greatest application is probably some variation of a daily undulatory periodization. 
Nick, I know you have to go now, so just finally, um, what advice and resources would you give to any coaches out there? So advice maybe to young coaches and resources for all coaches, and then finally, where can people find out more about you? Young coaches, get a mentor. I mean, if, you, if you've read the recent book by Robert Greene called Mastery and any of the other great ones, and me speaking personally, please find a mentor, find a series of mentors. I, I really think that you cannot replace that kind of guidance through an internship or just correspondence. Uh, in, terms of in terms of education, I encourage people to, to balance their learning with practice. I think in our field it's easy, and I'm, I am absolutely someone that's done this more often than not. We read more than we can apply, so make sure you're in an environment where everything that you're reading and studying has a direct output of application. You just you can't get away from those because those are the ones that are going to give you the true evidence. And then I want you to use that against some of the great blogs out there, the Strength Coach Podcast, strengthcoach.com. And, and now, I mean, I have so many blogs that I love to look at at this point. I think it would be ridiculous for me to even start to try to mention them all. Um, I think Elite Track and Field, Mike Young's website is brilliant. Um, I think anything by Dan Path in the sprint world is great. So. All, all those kind of subjective, objective blogs and resources, find the ones you like, anchor in them, grow those slowly, use Google Scholar and PubMed as constant resources, get a mentor, do internships, and just don't stop. Every day, every day, as Thomas Plummer would say, do three big things for your career. That could be emailing someone that wrote a book that you liked, that could be um, reading an article that you've been putting off for a long time, but do three big things every day that are going to progress your career. And if we do that, uh, we will have we will have success. Just don't stop. That is my best is my best recommendation. Just don't stop because when you don't stop, inevitably the, the, the trajectory will continue to rise. Well, you were you were one of my big three, so you're you're off the list for today. <laughs> I appreciate that. Go ahead. Yeah, to find out a bit more, you know, athletesperformance.com and corporateperformance.com have incredible resources for people. Uh, you can click our education link to look at all the different mentorships. Uh, we're going to be running uh, a phase one and a phase two in, in Dublin uh, the last two weeks of August. So for those of you that would like to learn more about us very quickly, we are running mentorships that can be found on our education website in Dublin this August. And then for me personally, I uh, can be reached out by email, nwinkleman at athletesforms.com. And I, I try to put up really you know, simple, clean stuff on Twitter, uh, at Nick Winkleman. So, you know, always, always love to help people out. And, and Robbie, honored to be on this podcast and appreciate everything that guys like you do for our industry. Thanks a million, Nick. Just, uh, just stay online and I'll just say goodbye to you as we wrap up the podcast. I know you're in a rush. So, guys... What a great podcast with Nick Winkleman, just an absolute encyclopedia of knowledge. Um, keep downloading the podcast, keep listening. I, I really appreciate your support. So take care. I'll talk to you soon, guys. Be well and peace out. <laughs>